Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Why Follow Jesus, with a message entitled, Desiring the Bread of Life. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 6, verses 41 to 51, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. it fascinating that it really is possible to look at something and have no idea what we're looking at. You know, years ago, I was in one of those magnificent European art galleries, and, and to my amazement, I found myself staring at some original paintings from the masters. And I don't know how it came to be, but I was put into a group of Canadian tourists. And, and here's where I'm confused, because the woman leading the tour was some kind of a volunteer. She was a Canadian woman who was matched with Canadians. And her comments were amazingly ridiculous. Most of the paintings had biblical themes, but she had clearly never read the Bible. And her one comment that has stuck with me before I wandered off is her wonderment at how people painted fatter women back in those days. Yep, she was staring at masterpieces and had no idea what she was looking at. Now, I fear I'm being unkind towards her. Perhaps there was no help on that day, and someone asked her to take these people down these corridors, and she volunteered, but then was in an awkward position of explaining something that was way beyond her depth. But it still makes a point. She had no idea what she was looking at. There's another example. I'm a bit of a car and a motorcycle enthusiast, and I find it amazing that some people really don't know the difference between a Corolla and a BMW 3 Series, for instance. Now, clearly, when it comes to cars, you know, it really doesn't matter. If all someone wants of a car is to get from point A to point B, who am I to judge? It's of little lasting value, and it's an eternally useless bit of information. But here's my real point. Sometimes we might stare at something that's of eternal value, and we don't know what we're looking at. You know, as we've been studying John chapter 6, we've been following a group of people who are amazed that Jesus had fed 5,000 with five barley loaves and two fish, simply you know, multiplying the food out of his hand. And, and they loved it because they were subsistence workers. And this man showed them that he had the capacity to feed them. Jesus can take care of our needs. They must have shouted it. You know, it was a great thing. But in the midst of the enthusiasm, Jesus tells them that they're only looking for him because they've had their fill of food. And of course, at this moment, we realize that the crowds in Galilee are, you know, they're looking at Jesus and they have no idea what they're looking at. And they're especially confused when Jesus tried to explain it. He said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and never thirst. And so we come now to John 6, 41 to 51. So let's read our text. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. You know, today from this text, I want us to notice three things. 
First, would you notice why it is that people can look at Jesus, or in our case, hear about Jesus, and not know what it is that they're looking at? Second, after we consider that, let's then discover why failing to see Jesus for who he is leads to a great deal of disappointment with Jesus. That is, Jesus simply doesn't act the way we might expect him to act. And ultimately, whatever fascination we once had for him, well, it it soon melts away and, and we become interested in other things. And then third, let's clearly define what Jesus meant when he said that he's the bread of life. All right, let's start from the beginning. How is it possible for the Galileans to have had Jesus among them, healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding first the 5,000 and then the 4,000, casting out demons, giving sight to the blind, explaining the kingdom of heaven, and all the while, they have no idea what's happening, who he is or what they're looking at. Well, let's look again at verses 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So I hope you see the confusion. He's telling us that he has come to earth from heaven. That's outrageous. Actually, we know that he came to Capernaum from Nazareth. It's a small two-bit village, and it's the brunt of a lot of jokes in the whole region. Now, it is true that Jesus could have conducted seminars at that point in time. He could have brought in his mom and could have explained about the virgin birth. Perhaps Jesus could have done a theological lecture on the word incarnation, that is, God entering into the world clothed in human flesh. Maybe he could do stuff like that. But as we will see in Jesus' answer to their unbelief, he never even touched on those matters. I mean, after all, if he were just a kid from Nazareth, well, how in the world does just another Nazarene feed 5,000 and walk on water? Has it been their experience that kids from Nazareth normally go about casting out demons and giving sight to the blind. And so it is true, of course, that he grew up in Nazareth, but they're staring at something and they don't know what they're looking at. You see, they could have asked, is it really true that this man is the bread of God who came down from heaven and then landed in Nazareth? But no one even contemplates that. You know, it's just simply enough for them to say, look, we know his mom and dad and his brothers and sisters, and with that, they're simply done. And that phenomenon, by the way, is just not unusual. It is possible to examine the immediate cause of something and never be curious about the ultimate cause of something. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. It's quite common in our day among naturalists. Oh, let me explain that. A naturalist is someone who argues that nature is all that exists. If you can't measure it and if you can't observe it with your five senses, well, For a naturalist, it doesn't exist. And so a naturalist scientist, that is an atheist, will frequently say that with the expansion of scientific knowledge, we we have no need for God. After all, when a plague afflicts a city, we don't need to crowd out the cathedrals and cry out to God. All we need to do is establish what it is that we're looking at and then enact proper healthcare procedures isolate the carriers of the disease, and eventually we can gain mastery over the plague. Prayer and faith are irrelevant, say the naturalists, for nature is all that exists. But there is, in all of this, an amazing blindness that makes me think that naturalists don't know what they're looking at when they look at nature. I mean, how is it that nature exists? Or how is it that nature seems to act in this amazingly consistent manner? I mean, those two questions alone should open up a world of discovery. 
but the summit never does. They know a lot about how nature acts, but they don't know what they're looking at when they look at nature. See, all naturalists think that all they have to do is to establish the immediate cause of something, and then they're content never to consider the ultimate cause of something. So they continue to stare at something, and they learn more about it, and all the while, they remain in darkness as to what it is that they're looking at. When it comes to Jesus, that's exactly what's going on here in Galilee. All we have to do, says the crowd, is to establish your parents and your hometown. And once we've established the immediate place of your origin, clearly we don't have to look any further than that. I know that this is also true of, well, say, for instance, the way some Christians think about their own local church. I mean, they may talk about, you know, we got a great preacher and we got, you know, great worship and we got great programs going on and we're a friendly church and, and, and we care about others. And, and that tends to end their conversation. They're staring at something and, and for all of their lives they might have been staring at it and they never know what they're looking at. They're looking at the body of Christ, but it escapes their notice. So let's move forward to our second point. I want to show from this text why it is that once we fail to see what we're looking at when we look at Jesus, that the next step means that we become deeply disappointed in Jesus. Put it plainly, when we fail to see Jesus for who he truly is and for what he came to do, ultimately to do, what we're going to find that everything else about him finally results in dissatisfaction. We don't like who he is. We wonder why he stopped so far short of his final goal. He's disappointing, and ultimately, we reject him. This is the cause of all liberal scholarship. In the end, they lose interest in Jesus. Why is that? There's no denying that these past few years had been full of hardships on a global scale. Can you imagine facing these troubles daily without the knowledge of a sovereign God? I can't. The reality is that there are millions of people around the world living every day without that assurance and searching for it in places that only return empty. That's why the mission of Back to the Bible Canada is so critical. This ministry exists to resource people with the only source of eternal hope and truth as revealed in God's Word, both faithful and uncompromised. As we close out our calendar year, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada have a goal to raise $517,000 by December 31st. Please join us as lives are changed through the consistent faithful teaching and engagement of the Bible. Consider a gift today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We have noticed that after Jesus told the crowd that, that he's the bread that has come down from heaven, that they stared at him in unbelief. You're nothing of the kind, they say. You're the kid who made it big from Nazareth, so stop fooling yourself and stop trying to fool us. Now look at verse 43. It's it's a telling verse. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Now that's how Jesus responds to them. He calls it grumbling. It's an interesting and well-chosen word. It, It brings to mind the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. 
Remember, the crowd has been telling Jesus that he is, quite frankly, disappointing. Moses fed millions of people daily for 40 years, and all you've done is feed us for one day, and that's not enough. Now, that word grumbling is well chosen at this point in time. It brings to mind passages of Scripture, like Exodus 16, 2 and 3. It says, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Or listen to what they said, and it's recorded in Numbers 11, 4-6. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now, by the way, isn't memory a strange thing, don't you find? And these people, you know, the ones under Moses weren't exactly eating at fine restaurants when they lived in Egypt. They didn't get the best of food. They were slaves, and slaves aren't high-end eaters. But once grumbling sets in, well, memory, well, that becomes a tricky thing. Here's the key. If Jesus had given the crowds of Galilee what they wanted, well, what they wanted would not have satisfied them. And so from that, we learn a major truth. If you were to get from Jesus what you think you want and what you think you need, well, it wouldn't be long and you wouldn't be pleased. When you merely view Jesus from a human point of view, he is most disappointing because what you want from him won't quench the thirst of your soul. It never does. It didn't in the time of Moses and it wouldn't in the time of Jesus. And that leads Jesus to the same conclusion that he has made before. Look at verses 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, you're going to notice that verse 45 is the other side of the equation. I mean, from the equation that Jesus began back in verse 37. You know, in verse 37, Jesus said that that all whom the Father gives me will come to me. But now in verse 45, he adds to that, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now, in order to understand this, we mustn't think that the Father is preventing anyone from coming to Jesus. I mean, what prevents anyone from coming to Jesus? Well, it's their misplaced desires. We want earthly things, and he's offering eternal things, and that's disappointing. And therefore, Jesus knows that what is required is a change of heart. See, it's a radical revisiting of our desires. All men and women are happy, at least for the moment, when all their desires are centered on this life and then they're fulfilled. When all our desires are earthly, eternity, even though it's, you know, it might interest us, it doesn't arouse our passion or our highest joys. C.S. Lewis, I think, said it eloquently. He said, we're quite content to play with mud pies in the backyard and ignore an invitation to come to the ocean and enjoy the beach. Mud pies means only things of this life. And that's why for this crowd, it's enough to know that Jesus comes from Nazareth. It's enough to know that he can feed us and heal us, and perhaps he can become our king and 
chase those cursed Romans from our land. That would be enough. Until, of course, he did that, and then they would complain all over again. What is required is not greater and more powerful miracles. What is required is what Jesus speaks of in verse 45. They will be taught by God. Look, we're helpless. Our immediate desires always crowd out what our souls actually need. We need to be taught by God. And here's the secret. Everyone who has been taught by God comes to Jesus. Or let me put it the other way around. Everyone who has not been taught by God, well, finds Jesus to be a disappointment. Well, let's review what we've said. You know, first, we've seen that a great many people simply didn't know what they were looking at when they looked at Jesus. And we also said it's the same today. You know, many people hear Jesus, even go to church. They don't know what they're looking at. And second, we've said that there is a reason why this is so. When human desires are misdirected or fallen or innately sinful, we can't see the value of what's being offered us. That is, we can't see that Jesus is offering us himself. He's the living bread that will eternally satisfy us. And so we come to the third issue of this passage. What exactly was Jesus referring to when he spoke of himself as the living bread? Let's take it one step at a time. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So please notice, Jesus is using images here in which he's always referring to the same thing. Eating the bread from heaven, that's an image. And it comes from the wilderness experience of Israel. Even as the Israelites ate manna and then survived, so Jesus is saying, I'm offering myself to you. I am the bread of eternal life. But practically, what's he talking about? Well, he means that you have to believe in Jesus. You have to trust in him. So eating the bread, well, that's an image. And the reality of that image is believing in Jesus. Okay, now to verses 48 to 51a. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So then, Jesus is making an offer. I hope you see that. He says, I'm promising you that if you believe in me, you're going to live forever. Look, all of us know that at the end of this life is the grave. Now, I know we frequently ignore that reality. And I sometimes hear of people who speak about fulfilling their destiny in life. Now, I'm never sure what that means because those same people will get to the end of their life, time's going to run out, and they're going to feel a great lack of fulfillment. What they had wanted has never been accomplished. They're going to complain bitterly for this life promised them something that would not be delivered. I would have people not talking about fulfilling life's destiny. I'd have them talking about being in training in this life in order to help them to fulfill their eternal destiny. Now here, in this life, we can learn to resist sin. We can learn to trust in Christ. In this life, we can perceive the hand of God in all things. We can learn to subject our own will to the will of the Father. That's not my destiny. My destiny is in heaven. It's in eternity. Eternity, not this life, becomes the all-consuming passion of the person who's trained by God. And it's this that Jesus is offering. I am the bread of eternity. Go ahead and eat, or go ahead and entrust your life to me. 
But still, what does that mean when he says that he's the bread of life? Well, look to the last half of verse 51. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Don't you see? Jesus is speaking about his cross. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to pay for the sins of all who trust in him. And through that offer, he will give them eternal life. Now, is that disappointing? Did you want so much more? Did you want this life to be the fulfillment of your dreams? Did you want health and fame and wealth and the fulfillment of purpose here? Did you want only the temporal? Are you content only with the immediate cause of things? Is is your eyesight filled with this life? And if that's you, Jesus will be disappointing to you. But if you finally see him for what he truly is, the giver of eternal life, and if you want nothing more than a rich and abundant life that will never perish, if you want death and hell and the grave to lie in ruins at the feet of Jesus, And if you want the life of Jesus to be your ultimate goal, then listen, you will find Jesus to be more than you ever wanted, and you will never abandon him. That's the issue before all of us. What do you want? And can you see, when you're looking at Jesus, what you're actually looking at? You're looking at the gates of eternity. See that in him and fall at his feet in worship. Thanks for your message, John. Uh, you know, I'm thinking often we fall into this this trap where I think, you know, if if we're not being satisfied uh, by God the way we we think we ought to be satisfied or that's going to take care of our needs, then often we sort of uh, we 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 walk away because we think this is not a faithful God. But this is this is not the thing Christ is asking us to concentrate on. Yeah, I know that if all that we do, you know, is what I've been talking about is if it's just temporal, I mean, God, give me this right now, you know, as I talked about health and fame and wealth and all that stuff, you know, if, if that's what I'm after, I'm soon going to find out that that I'm disappointed because I'll always, my wanter will never be satisfied. I, I got a bigger wanter than than you can imagine. I mean, the grave, says the book of Proverbs, is never satisfied and neither are our desires. So I think that's what Jesus is saying. We need to consume the bread of eternal life. And that's what Jesus is offering. And if that's what we come to him with, we will be so satisfied that we will recognize there's nowhere else to go. That's the key to this entire passage. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again here tomorrow. For John's series, Why Follow Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. It's never too early to start planning your travels for the new year. And our April 2024 cruise is filling up faster than we'd imagined. You won't want to miss this incredible opportunity to vacation and be under the direct teaching of Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld. Laugh and be encouraged with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and share moments of musical inspiration with special guest Amanda Stott. From April 5th to the 14th, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean, including Miami, Porta Plata, St. John's, and more. For more information, just visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are used and all related costs are covered by participants.